With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. Welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis of Post Media. And on the line today, I have Travis Yost of TSN, a returnee to the podcast. Travis, how's it going? I thought for sure after the initial that there was no chance of uh, the returnee being bestowed on me, but here we are. It's a yeah, it's quite the honor, I must say myself. <laughs> and uh, what what is what does the Ring of Honor honor look like for other returnees? Like what what audience am I keeping here? Um, who else has been on? Uh, Michael Trakos two or three times. Um, All right. There's actually. I, I try not to have too many repeats, so he might be wow, the only. This might, is like I'm a VIP on this thing. Yeah, like I mean, I'm I'm blanking. I know there's a couple other people, but there are many. Oh, uh, Matthew Collar for uh, ESPN in uh, Minnesota. All right, this is this is a good this is a good group. This is, I'm, I'm okay <laughs> with this. I'm good with this. Yeah, you know what? I I I I tagged you for this one or or tapped you for this one because uh, I wanted to talk about best lines so obviously forward lines best trios and then best defensemen the the pairings because i feel like the whole the combos they they get forgotten about there's a lot of talk about individual awards that's obviously an ongoing thing throughout the season and it heats up towards the end and i thought we'd take a pause and and do something different so um i'm gonna put you on the hot seat first and uh get your top line of the nhl this season and maybe just in general or 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 line that you just really like so I think we need to get I think we need to get one like collectively we need to get one line right out there and it won't be a Travis pick it won't be a John pick but the Bergeron Marchand Pasternak line just I think that's I were you going to say that because I feel like we just have to throw that out there and immediately call that I, I feel like that's the NHL's best line like they have been all year they've single-handedly carried Boston into the playoff race um, Patrice Bergeron's numbers are again absolutely ridiculous like I, I think he could have one like seven Selkie trophies at this point, and that would not be unfair. And the the crazy thing is, I, for the longest time, I think Stat and even hockey people have had trouble kind of teasing out the impact Marchand has on Bergeron or vice versa. But I think what Boston has is just two really, really good veterans and now one really productive younger goal scorer on that line and I, I th- do you do you agree? I think yeah. this is the NHL's best line. I almost want to say it's unanimous, but I, I'm I'm hesitant because I hope you agree with that. Well, I have a one A one B, but they're one of them. So I'd say 
you are correct in your analysis. So I don't. I, one of the interesting things with this, if there was one, if there was one counter argument to make calling them the best line, part of what makes them look so freaking good is the fact that Boston looks so bad when they're not on the ice. And I, I always have trouble individually biasing myself when when that happens because like if you watch the Bruins for like. 30 minutes a night, they're a train wreck. But for the 15, 17 minutes at even strength that these three guys are playing together out there, they're so good. And although their individual scoring numbers, their rate numbers, their five-on-five possession numbers, whatever, stacked up is best, their team numbers are just so, so far and away better than just about everyone else. But that's because there's so much stink in the bottom six of that Bruins organization. So I, I think that's like the only counter argument, but I'm not, I'm not even sure how fair that is. Yeah, I think the only negative angle you could take on, on the Bruins' top line is that they don't score a ton. I mean, they still score a fair bit. They still score more than most lines, but they're not you know leading the league in total goals, leading the league at five-on-five five goals, and just being this huge juggernaut in terms of putting the puck in the net they control play like crazy like you alluded to but you know if you go back to the beginning of the season they couldn't score it was like game after game there was getting they were getting all these shots all these shot attempts scoring chances it was all piling up and the the goals just weren't there things have changed in the last couple months brad marchand now has 32 goals in the season he has the most points since january 1st across the league so that's evened out a bit but i guess the only thing you could pick at is that they don't score you know, a league high amount of goals. The, 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 the thing that I think they can fall back on is like, like you pointed out, they're not a, a tremendously productive offensive team, but they just, no one scores and no one generates shots against them when they're on the ice. I, I think I looked at it a couple weeks ago. I think they're giving up like sub 45 shots against for 60 minutes as a group at five on five, which is it, it, it's honestly almost unheard of. I mean, only the best of the best lines can do that consistently, and they've played together for hundreds of minutes at this point. So, I mean, they 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 basically spend every shift in the offensive zone, and there is tremendous value in that because let's face it, the Bruins have had real goaltending issues this year, which is the first time in a long time. Their backup goaltending is stunk. The defense is not nearly as good as it was a few years ago. So, there is tremendous value in having a very good defensive line there too. Yeah, and if you just look at sort of the makeup of the three guys, you have two finishers and one playmaker, obviously the playmaker being Bergeron. And I, I think that's ideally what you want is to have the guy in the middle distributing the puck and his wings being able to score. Obviously, they got to distribute as well. But having Pasternak and Marchand as kind of trigger men for Bergeron is obviously work wonders for that line, as opposed to, I think they were with Bacchus last year, if I remember correctly, or the year before. That was their their last uh, third member, and now they've graduated to a much better offensive player as uh, Pasternak has developed. So that's been, I think, a huge plus, having that second finisher on that line. Yeah, I'm glad we both agree on them, though, because, by the way, not only are they unanimous, but they're also the most boring pick, I think, of the lot. I think there's going to be much more fun picks here. So who did you have as your 1B? Yeah, it was uh, Minnesota's Jason Zucker, Miko Koivu, Michael Granlin line. What's, what are your Jason first? Zucker's, so that line, when you, when you talk about maybe the absence of offense, have you looked at Jason Zucker's goals for for 60 minutes this year. So I, I wrote a piece this week on Patrick Line, and 
I, I know this sounds crazy to some people, but I think Patrick Laine has a pretty good argument for the Calder Trophy. But it, lost in all this, to make a long story short, one of the arguments, I think, that really benefits Laine is not just his individual scoring. It's the fact that his line is freakishly productive. Like, Laine scores like 3.6 goals per 60 minutes when he's out there. And granted, you have three first-round picks on one line. There's, there's, you know, Laine may be the best player on that line, but I mean, you got Mark Scheifele is too, and the Ehlers three. It's, you're not really punching down there. Um, there's a lot of talent there, but if you look at that line, you look at Laine's 3.6 goals per 60, and you're like, okay, wow. Well, that's, that's like almost untoppable. You would have to be an absolutely elite talent to get to that threshold. Well, if you look as of, I think, a Sunday, you looked at anyone who topped this 3.6 mark, there's two guys. It's Evgeny Malkin, generational talent, Hall of Famer, right? And Jason Sucker, which I'm like, well, <laughs> what the heck? But it's, it's exactly why you pointed out that line, right? Like they've just been blazingly productive. We'll talk about a breakout year. The guy had, uh, had 26 points as his, his top productive year in the past, and he hasn't played very long. I think it's like five years, but he's never had a full you know, 82-game season. So whatever, I guess we were waiting for the breakout. But he already has 45, and the line just – produces i don't know what else there is to say they have the most five on five goals among uh i think i i sorted it by 300 minutes at five on five and that and then i went from that list in terms of lines on on corsica they've got a great tool there to look at lines and they're leading in that category so they've technically been the most productive and if you want to call uh you know goals four per 60 as as your top stat and that's in that section and then uh they're just they're putting up ridiculous amount of scoring chances they're all over the net they're uh, they, they kind of complement each other too you know you got granlin more of a more of a fast kind of um you know leading the attack kind of guy and, and waiting for that pass uh zucker's a very smart player and then koivu as much as everyone probably thought oh he's gonna fall off eventually he's gonna be out of the league in a few years because he's getting old he's had a great year himself he's obviously the the two-way pivot that that a lot of teams covet and the wild just has a ridiculous top six when you factor in their other line, which could be argued as, as one of the better lines in the league as well. A couple other things to add on. So I completely agree with this pick. I think I had probably three or four, which is honestly a bit low in retrospect, maybe Uh, a couple things about Zucker while you bring him up. I've always felt like he was a guy that was much more noticeable than the stat sheet would have indicated predating this year. Like, I feel like when I watched, Minnesota games like he was all over the ice but that he couldn't necessarily finish he reminded me in some ways of a Michael Grabner and it, it's just funny because Grabner exploded this year I mean granted Michael Grabner had a couple pretty big seasons back with the uh with the Islanders I think uh, I want to say like 2010-2011 era and then he kind of went he drove into a ditch and then he <laughs> pulled out of it incredibly but Zucker I always felt like was the same way like if he could find the right combination of guys to play with in the right fit and the right role, and he had a bit of puck luck in a given year, like I think he could have been a productive scorer. If you look back at kind of his career arc, it's interesting too. He was a point-per-game player in the AHL. The first and I think only year, um, I think he might have had a brief stint when, when with Iowa in like the third year of his career. But he, had a, he, had a, he was a point-per-game player in his rookie year in the AHL. And I, I think Minnesota had these big expectations of him being a produ- uh, productive winger. Uh, productive forward in, in the NHL, and it's kind of been there, but it's it's not been at the rate that they probably would have expected. So he's become like this like middle six guy who can occasionally chip in. But 
it's been great to watch this year. I mean, I, the fit, he just fits in so well. And I think, I think he is getting the right bounces. I think everyone on that Minnesota team is getting the right bounces, but you know, good for him. Like he, he, he was such an eminently noticeable player for me for years. Um, and, and I'm glad to kind of see that, that kind of play out and pan out for him. Well, and I was doing a little research on the line and just, you know, reading a few things and literally every quote that, uh, you know, Koivu, Granlin, Bruce Boudreaux, Jason Zucker, any quote relating to the line and its success always brought up, oh, we have a defense first mentality. Like, I understand that that's the cliche thing to say, but I mean, the numbers show that they do care about their own end as well. So it's pretty impressive that they've been able to uh, kind of juggle both and be such a dominant line when they have the puck. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's one of those, you know, uh, a good defense leads to a good offense, and 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 they've just been able to transition well. And one thing I noticed when I watched them is that they they have such good puck support. There's always two guys right beside each other, and on the four check, there's two guys right on the puck carrier. And there, I could just talk all day about this uh, trio. Yeah. Um. Can let's can I? I'm I'm gonna nominate now my favorite line to have watched all year. Let's hear it. It's in parallel with my favorite team to have watched all year. A team I am all in on. Do you have any guesses? I'm guessing Nashville. No, no, but Nashville is also on my list. But this <laughs> line, Michael um, Backlund with Froelich and Kachuk on okay. his, uh, on okay. his wings. This line in Calgary has been as productive and as fun as any line in the NHL. Um, I, I did. So, by the way, we should reference a couple of great uh, stat sites for for uh, this sort of information, if you're looking at combinations. And uh, hockey analysis is great. Corsica is great. Left-wing lock is great for deployment. Um, if you kind of look at an aggregate of all three, you get a really good snapshot of, of how the productive lines or players have been together. Um, this Calgary line, though, the, the 3M line, do you, know, do you know the percentage? They've played over 600 minutes together, so I specifically went out and researched this one because I wanted to. I was like, well, let me check these numbers because they don't seem right. They played six hundred over six hundred minutes together. That's they a lot. They are scoring sixty four percent of the goals with fifty eight over fifty eight percent of the shots in their favor. I mean, this this is a good Calgary team, not a like explosively great Calgary team. Those are Bergeron Marchand esque numbers that they are posting in Calgary, and I, I think Calgary is just to me to me Calgary is the most interesting team in the league because I think they have so many pieces there for a potential Stanley Cup contender. And the only thing that they're missing is a generational, you know, not, not even a generational talent, but that, that elite high, high, high-end player. And I don't know if Goudreau is there or not. He's probably close. But I think they offset it well by having a bunch of these guys who are just, like, between good and very good. This line, though, they, they are incredible defensively. They are incredible in the neutral zone. And I think that is the most obvious thing to me when I'm watching this line. They dominate the neutral zone. They're either too fast or too good for their stick with their sticks for any of the opposition to really do much of anything against them. And offensively, they have enough skill to put pucks in the net. Like, they check all three of the boxes. And to me, even when their goal goal scoring dries up or when it will dry up, like, they are just so tough to play against. And you would not look at those three guys if you were in the 1990s and had the, you know, the old hockey era mindset. If you look at these three guys together on a line, you would not say, wow, this is going to be one, one tough group to score against or generate shots against. But they are, man. They are, they are electric. 
Well, and if you're a Flames fan, you got to be pretty happy about this in terms of Froelich's locked up for a few years, Backlund's you know under contract through next year at least, and then Kachuk's obviously a first-year player. So as much as the sample size has been big this season, it can grow into next season, and you can really see, you know, are these guys for real, and is it worth keeping them together, you know, long-term, which is obviously a decision the organization will have to make, but... Kachuk in general has been a really a revelation, I guess you could say, in terms of the expectations coming into the season, the way he's been playing, and the fact that he's been able to fit in with a guy like Backlund and Froelich, kind of these veterans that, that obviously have been around long enough to know how to play the game and how to play the game correctly in terms of two-way play, and he's he hasn't looked out of place, that's for sure. The one thing that is a knock on this line, and it's kind of tough to tease out, kind of like along the same thing that we were talking about with Boston, they take a ton of penalties. They have a pretty ugly penalty differential, primarily Kachuk, but it's, it's a combination, really. And part of it stems, I, I think there's a decent argument to be made that the post-Dennis Weidman era incident has not been kind to Calgary across the board in penalties. But this is this is the one knock on this group is that they are very far in the red um, on the penalties. I, I want to say they're at least 15 in the red. Um, they're they're sending more guys to the box than not, which is kind of counterintuitive. You would think a line with this much speed and skill, it's the reverse. But they they get whistled for everything. Now it's is it a Calgary thing or a line thing? I think I think it's, it's hard to say because Kachuk, for example, was not around when the Weidman thing occurred, but at the same time he plays for an organization that I think may be being labeled weirdly by the refs. So I, I do think that's probably the one thing that kind of knocks him into that two or three range for me in terms of best lines, but I think it is something worth calling out. Yeah, and there that's obviously something you can fix. I think with Kachuk it might be just a matter of end of season, there's a there's a sit down with the coach and somehow they figure out for him to play the same game but just not get those penalties. I don't I, I don't know what type of penalties he's getting off the top of my head, so I can't really, you know, figure out how to fix it. I don't know if they're after the whistle or stick penalties or, or what what have you, but I mean, if that's your biggest problem as a rookie, I think you're gonna be all right. Yeah, I wanna say Kachuk I, I don't know about for a week and back one, but I wanna say Kachuk is primarily stick penalties, but I cannot remember that one hundred percent. I want to say it was stick penalties, though. But either way, he also, for the record, Kachuk also draws a ton. Yeah. Um, it's just that he's taking a lot more than he's drawing. So, anyways, um, what is your what is your next up? I had uh, sneakily, well, not sneakily now because I said Nashville before, but uh, Philip, <laughs> Philip Forsberg and Ryan Johansson, Victor Arvidsson. I like that trio and, and the way that they all – sort of fit together and there was big outcry about uh Forsberg to start the season. He had something like, I don't know, I think first 19 games, I'm I'm just guessing, but it was it was a big chunk of games where he just couldn't score and lately he's been scoring more than you probably should, two hat-tricks in a row and I think he had something like 10 goals in five games. He was just been on fire and that's kind of that's why they picked him up, right? To play with Johansson and Arvidsson obviously is kind of a fancy stats uh darling of sorts and he's he's kind of come to the fore this season and created a really productive line between those guys and I don't know there's something about uh the the chemistry there with Forsberg and Johansson where you just go this might work long term it's definitely working now and just their their age and their trajectory it's it's promising that, that Forsberg line now for a, it's been with different players but it seems like whatever line Forsberg is on it seems to kick ass. And, and like I, I know we joke about the Martin Eretz trade and 
how that's played out. But man, like every time you look at whatever discussion, whatever podcast you have in the future, John, I'm sure if you go league wide or, or, you know, put something out for discussion, his name always seems to come up, which is a consistent reminder of uh, how, how south that trade went. Um, the, the, the one thing I noted, so I, I, I put them on my list, but I also had another group of players on my list, and I was like, huh, because one of the things that I had mentioned when I had a different podcast last year, we, I went through a similar exercise, and we were kind of talking about most productive lines, most productive players, most productive wowie numbers or most notable wowie numbers. And the one thing, the two things that always kept popping up were Forsberg and somebody or the Tampa Bay trio. And, and for some reason, I've always kind of looked at those interrelated, but kind of along the same lines why I noted Forsberg, Arvidsson, and, and Ryan Johansson um, is the same reason I also noted Tyler Johnson, Nikita Kucherov, and Andre Palat this year. That even though they didn't play much, the team's been decimated by injuries, but in the 300 or so minutes they have played together, Again, just wondrously productive, uh, much in the same vein as that Forsberg line. I, I think they have a lot of comparable skill sets, right? It's like the playmaker, the sniper, and a bunch of guys who can snake, escape, right? Like, you, you have all three of those, you're going to be a very tough team to defend against. And I think that that's what you're seeing with Forsberg and his group or the, the Tampa Bay trio. I, I think they, they hit all those boxes. Yeah, I would agree. I had them in my uh, honorable mentions. Same with uh, Shifley, Line A, and Ehlers. Um uh, Anaheim, with their Cogliano, Kessler, and Silverberg line, they've been... Jacob Silverberg is so good. I'm so glad you brought them. <laughs> Jacob Silverberg is so good. How about that trade for, for Anaheim, then, in, in hindsight, eh? Jesus. That that worked out quite well for him. I, I, don't, think, I don't think Jacques gets enough uh, credit for what he does for that line. I think a lot of people think it's Kessler. Um, I think some people probably even think it's a mix. I think it's mostly... Silverberg. I, I I don't see how it's not. If you look at kind of the wowie numbers between him and any other player, it seems like the shots always go north when he's around and not in south, vice versa. Um, he has been incredibly good. I, I don't know that he's had the same the type of scoring touch that he was promised when he was a prospect, but defensively, I think he's been twice as good. Yeah, they're actually tops and expected goals, at least according to my the way I kind of classified things, 300 minutes uh, or more at 5-on-5. Five five. So they've been probably um, not scoring as much as they should, but, I mean, if if that's the, the situation, I'm sure the bounces will go their way. And Cogliano, he's, he's a really good story in terms of uh, turning your career around. And, and I mean, it's, it's kind of old news now, but I always think about him like, man, I remember when he was on the Oilers and he was kind of like falling out of favor – and ends up on on the Ducks and is sort of like this this depth guy. And now he's actually contributing in all these different ways and contributing to offense here and there too. It's it's kind of a good story to see. And he has this crazy streak where he hasn't been out of the lineup in forever. Yeah, he he's been an Iron Man for feels like a decade. Um, the only other line I had that there were a bunch of other lines kind of in the honorable honorable mention category, but the one last one that I had a call out for was the one in Edmonton, if only because, one, if there's a line that's been close to as fun as the 3M line in Calgary, it's been this one. And two, I think you could argue that they have they are single-handedly, along with probably the improved goaltending play, so maybe not single-handedly, but they are the main reason why their team is in the playoff race right now, and that is the Connor McDavid line with, with Dreisaitl and Maroon. Um, again, we talked so much in the past 15 or 20 minutes about fit and chemistry, 
it's very easy when you have Connor McDavid in the middle of the lineup yeah. um, because he's so good. He, arguably the best or second best player already in the league. But I, I think it, it's it's complimentary, right? Like if there's one area or two areas that you can benefit from, it's, oh, and we also have this another layer of a, a really good underrated passer and playmaker in Dreisaitl and a guy who can get to the front of the net as well as anyone in Maroon. Like, do you remember, I, I, I even had, so I did not bet against Maroon when he went to Edmonton because I had made the mistake of betting against him and firing off a very regrettable tweet, I think, <laughs> four years ago when I think it was the first time I was watching Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry and this other guy on the line. I'm like, what is what is Patrick Maroon doing up there with Getzlaff and Perry? And if you remember, I want to say this was like four seasons ago, they were incredible. I mean, it was like the most perfect fit, and I didn't. I didn't think it made sense because it was three guys who weren't great skaters. And my thought was, hey, if Maroon could play, if 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 he really does have this type of scoring touch, he just needs some guys he can skate with. Well, <laughs> crap. I mean, McDavid and Drysdale can skate like the wind. I, that that is one other uh, really fun and, and really productive line that I've been tracking all year. If if you're the Edmonton Oilers, do you split up Drysaitel and McDavid, or do you like? Well, obviously you like this line, but long term, do you do you think Drysaitel should have his own line and drive his own line? Yeah, I, I think they would. I think they would ultimately like to um, to have Drysaitel down the lineup. I just don't know that. I think they are. I think it benefits them right now to play them together because I think. That they are, I don't want to say concerned, but I think they have questions about whether Drysaddle can drive play on his on his own line today. Um, and and we've kind of even seen that in small spurts when he plays with another guy in outside of that trio, he seems a bit less productive. And maybe that's just noise. Maybe I'm kind of extrapolating meaning out of something that's not real. There's not really anything there. But I, he has certainly, no one would argue, he has certainly benefited from playing with this group and. I, I if you're Edmonton and you look at this, you know the first sixty or so games, and you're in the playoff. You're more than in the playoff hunt. You got a position locked down right now, and you know how productive that line is. I, it's hard to split them up, right? All right, let's transition to defense pairings and the best ones in our mind. Obviously, this is a subjective exercise, and I messaged you earlier about the podcast, batting around ideas, and I said bring to the table a couple of your best defensemen in the league, and you know put your personal spin on it. I landed on Victor Hedman and whoever he's playing with, uh, with Anton <laughs> Anton Strollman and Jake Dotchkin. Those two, you know, if if you put them on Hedman's line or sorry on his on his pairing on his on his offside, obviously Strollman's the better player, but Dotchkin is similar. They're both big. They're both mobile. They're both physical. They both complement Victor Hedman very well. The results are similar. They suppress a lot of shots. Uh, you know, they're they can just go up against any line, and they usually come out on top. They have decent puck skills between the three of them, and they're just a a force, a wrecking ball of sorts. So, obviously, you know, you pick Strawman in the end, but at at current rate, I'm pretty sure uh, Hedman and Strawman are not together. So, it's Hedman and two other guys. That's that's not a that's not a uh, bad take at all. Like that that is a very. I was actually looking at the. I wrote an article for tomorrow at TSN on Eric Carlson, and even in light of the first half of the year, that he, it seemed like he was being very quiet. Like he again, he's putting up just these gigantic numbers, just a gigantic otherworldly offensive numbers that basically have only been beaten 
by guys who are already in the Hall of Fame, which begs the question, like, has he already done enough? I mean, obviously he's going to have much more time to, to build on his resume, ideally win a championship or two. But, like, his scoring is – it's unprecedented. It's not close to unprecedented. It's not just really good. It's unprecedented what we've seen. And one of the things I noticed when I looked at it was I was kind of looking up at, like, could Carlson even – like, how close does he need to get to Burns to make this a legitimate discussion? Because, like, it, it, Car- he's closing in on the – I think he's two assists shy of McDavid for the league lead, which is absurd in its own right. But Burns has this, you know, he's just been massively productive from a goal-scoring perspective and a shot-generating perspective. And the question was, how close would Carlson need to get for people to really say, well, maybe actually Eric Carlson is in the Norris, right? right? And one of the things I was like, huh, he's, a, he's about a handful of points away. And I looked down from Carlson, like, south, and I'm like, holy crap, Victor Hedman's got a ton of points this year. And maybe it's because Tampa Bay just has not had the same pop that they usually have as a team. And, again, I think that's predominantly because of all the injuries they've dealt with. They have not been dealt a good hand this year. No. But he has been as quietly productive as really any player I can remember. Maybe it's just me. Maybe, like, I haven't noticed um, or haven't paid enough careful attention. Maybe that's an indictment of me. But he is turning in another master class season um, at every level uh, for Tampa Bay. And it, you almost wonder what the Lightning would have looked like this year if had not been in the lineup. What is is that your your topic? Is Tampa Bay or is it Carlson's pairing with Mathot? So I, or is it someone on, else? It, there was one pairing I had called out as this is the been the best pairing in the NHL, and it was not Victor Hedman and whoever, and it was not Eric Carlson and whoever. It was actually Mark Giordano and Doug, Doug, Dougie Hamilton. Uh, again, I, it, I flames again. This podcast would have a bit of a Calgary twang to it. That's why I, I joked around in the lead, but it, it's so. Again, a lot, a lot similar to what we talked about with that 3M line. Their five-on-five numbers when they've played together, it's like over 700 minutes, are through the roof. I, I'm running out of adjectives at this point, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, they have 66% of the goals, 58% of the shots, and almost 60% of the scoring chances in their favor when they've played together. Like, you just do, you will not lose many games if you have those three boxes checked. And, I just I I struggle with the notion that Calgary needs to split these guys up or kind of rearrange their defensive talent. Like I think there's a need for one more defenseman on the Flames roster. Like they've got these two guys, they've got Brody, and then it's kind of this mix mash third pairing that you'd like to improve long term. But one of the things that you can always argue is if you have one pairing that is just so dynamite you can get by with a shaky pairing. And I think Calgary is proving that exact point. They have this ungodly, unbeatable defensive pairing as their top pairing. And they've got TJ Brody and Co., whoever TJ Brody's playing with at that given time, who are fine when they're out there. And then you have this third pairing. It's like, just don't get us killed in the 12 minutes you're out there. And, like, I think they've been able to show that teams can win through this. Like, you, you, the reality is, especially as you get into March and April, Giordano and Hamilton are going to play the majority of minutes for Calgary, and teams are going to have an ungodly time trying to score against them. Like that, that is just what they have proven. And by the way, this is now what year four of Giordano doing this. Like he's been, I think he had one year where he, he lost a lot of time due to injury. But it, it it feels like he has been maybe not Norris good every year, but like in the Hall of Very Good for like four straight years. I mean, he is he is in my mind 
the most underrated defenseman in the league. And like, I, I, it's crazy because we talked a few years ago about whether he was a Norris contender, but it, it seems to me he doesn't have a, as much pop as he used to during that run. But I think he's been every bit as good. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually now that I kind of go back in my head to the start of the season, I'm a little surprised. I thought maybe he would be uh, regressing just based on age and injury and things catching up to him and you know life. Uh, but he's obviously – you mentioned all those numbers, and I'm like flabbergasted. It's like, so how can I even argue anyone else when they're controlling everything by such a large amount, such a meaningful amount? It's crazy, the the share of the shots, the share of the goals, the share of those scoring chances. I mean, what else do you want from a pairing, right? Yeah, and so the, the thing that's really fun to me is those five minutes or whatever they are when they are out there with the Pro League backland line um like what what do you have like unless you have a Sidney Crosby Latang group or if you have McDavid and what a pick whatever defensive pairing is Edmonton's top pairing I'm never sure what what that pairing looks like or you get my point though unless you have like a freaking good line top line and a freaking good pairing playing together with them like that is why I give Calgary a, as much of a puncher's chance as any team in the west if not because the western conference sucks than for the fact that they can put out a five-man lineup that is that can that can bang with anyone. They can bang with the Thornton line. They can bang with the Hosa line. Like I will put them up there with with those two or three best lines in that Western Conference. And when you have that, like it's hard to miss the playoffs in a league where 16 teams make it. To say nothing of the fact that a team could probably make a run. Where do you put uh, Brent Burns and Paul Martin in your in your ranking of defense pairing? I don't know if, if you really even gave them much thought, but. So I didn't have them as high as you would have thought. And I, I, the part I struggled with is I, I have trouble figuring out how good Burns and whoever, in this case Martin, have been versus just Burns and or Burns playing with the Thornton group. Like I, I struggle with that. And the other piece I, I struggle with is where you have to give a lot of credit to Burns at 5-on-5. Five their power play has kind of looked weirdly disjointed. I don't know if you've noticed this year. Washington's been going through the same thing, which is one of the big reasons why I endorsed that Kevin Shattenkirk deal for the, for the Capitals. But their power play has not had the same oomph or tenacity something. Yeah. Uh, as it has in years past. And it feels like so much more is flowing through burns lately, just generating shot after shot like a, like a maniac. And, like, there's value in that, but it, I think the power play is almost a different beast. Like you, there is a very real sense of shot quality there, whereas you probably don't have as much at five on five. And for as good as Burns has been, and I think he's going to win the Norris Trophy, I, I, I struggled with where to grade that pairing versus where to just grade Burns. If that makes sense. No, yeah, I, I kind of. It's hard to. Because Paul Martin is also such a hard guy to get a handle on in general. Yeah, and then you look at Burns and you go, okay, like, yes, he's producing all this offense. Yes, he's always moving the puck forward. Um, yes, he's decent defensively. But do you really, you know, put him in that upper echelon in terms of pairings, just carrying Martin with him? So it's a, it's a tricky situation. And I kind of put it in my, my honorable mentions, but I thought I'd ask you for your take on that. Yeah, I it's it's one that I have... It, it's it's one that I, I struggled with a bit, and and I I just didn't know where to where to pin the dot, like where to say okay this pairing has been this effective because it so much feels like Burns and his line 
And, like, that's not an indictment to Martin. I just don't know. I guess in, in a literal sense that pairing's been fantastic, but I don't know how you grade them out. Um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of, a, of another group um, that, that I kind of had a similar issue with. And this was before, this was before the trade for St. Louis. Uh, but I thought Shattenkirk and Carl Gunnarsson were playing really well together this year. But I thought a lot of it was because of Shattenkirk. And I didn't know I, – it, well, one, one funny thing about this pairing, though, is that they were absolutely bludgeoned by just horrific goal. Like, their, their scoring chance and, and Corsi numbers and whatever metric you're going to look at that's non-goal-related were, were outstanding. But their goal rates were, like, 40%, and that's because their goalies were stopping, like, one of every nine shots when they were out there over, like, hundreds of minutes, which is nuts. But it's another story. The, the part I struggled with was Carl Gunnarsson's been kind of like this – he was at least a sexy stats defenseman for a few years and I don't know that he has the same effectivity as he once did and that's I kind of had the same like I circled this group and I'm like I think they were really good but I don't know where you put them on the hierarchy so you're going with basically uh flames across the board <laughs> mix in a little Minnesota <laughs> yeah, wild there uh, fair um the I, I will give you you want a one uh do you want a one non flames pairing here absolutely okay um Ryan Suter and Jared Spurgeon. Oh, I Ryan that one. Suter has been, you know, it, we talked about Iron Man with Kyle Lanell. This guy has been an Iron Man for Nashville and Minnesota for like what eight years now. It feels like, but this is the first year where I felt that you could watch Ryan Suter play, and it wasn't just oh he's a, he's a good defenseman. Like he's so steady, you can give him twenty five minutes. Like I felt like this year he has really moved the needle in the right direction, and I think a lot of it was not his fault. I think it was getting him the right guy to play with, especially since him and Shea Weber left and split and, you know, in Suter went to Minnesota. I, I, I feel like Minnesota has always been kind of picking and choosing where to where to deploy Suter and what situations and what game states, how much minutes to give him, who to play him with. I, I think the last part has been answered because I think Jared Spurgeon is a perfect fit. He can move the puck well. He is, he's, like, he's like a clone almost of Suter. Like he's competent in every zone. He can play a bunch of minutes. And it's like if, well, if I took Ryan Suter – and cloned him, and then put Ryan Suter next to Ryan Suter, and maybe just a little smaller. Yeah, just like shrunk him like four inches. Pairing work, and uh, their rate numbers, just like the Calgary pairing I mentioned uh, earlier, are ridiculous. And not dissimilar to what we've seen pretty much across the board in Minnesota, but they've been chewing up minutes and, and really, really strong for that wild team in Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah, the wild team in general, it's really hard to bet against them. You just look at their roster and what they've been able to do and the Bruce Boudreaux effect on really top to bottom. And, and he's really good at just finding the right matches on defense, on forward. And a guy like Eric Stahl sees his, he's, he's his career revitalized and Nino Niederreiter is playing out of his, well, out they, of his they mind. Well, they stole Eric Stahl. That, that yeah. contract is unfair. Now, I think we are done with the hockey portion of the podcast, uh, unless you have something else to add, but... I'd like to get a Travis Yost food take. I have one very important question to ask you to, to finish on the hockey side. Yeah, sure. What do you? So I, I've been, I've been buying Bruce Boudreaux stock for a decade. Like I, he's now shown it over multiple teams, multiple environments, multiple rosters, different skill sets, PDO or not. Um, his teams always win in the regular season. Like it, there's something there inevitably at, at the end of the day. The knock on him always was, well, 
outside of he can't win the playoffs, is that, hey, he had this really good Washington team. When we got to Anaheim, that team stunk, and he built them immediately up. And then he got to Minnesota, and no one, no one was complimenting that Minnesota roster. A lot of dead contracts. There were some interesting players, but seemed top-heavy, and now they're great. And I, I look, though, and I'm like, you know, you reconcile that against the the question of, yeah, maybe they're a good team, but not nearly as good as their record indicates. Do you, if, if, this, if the playoffs started today, would you say they're the favorite out of that division, or is it Chicago? It's hard to bet against Chicago just all the time. I, I find it very difficult, but Minnesota, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, just up and down the lineup, you go, this guy's having a career year, this guy's having a career year. You mentioned Suter. Like, I don't know if he's technically having a career, but he looks like he's in great form. Spurgeon, you go up and down and you're like, where, where do I even, where do I pick apart? Devin Dubnik is incredible. So I don't know. It's it's more of a toss up, but I think I'd still maybe lean towards Chicago. And maybe that's a just looking in the past sort of uh, mentality. But I don't know, man. That's a, that's a tough one. It's it's those two in the West, in my opinion, and, and the Sharks and uh and then the East is is more up for grabs, but so so I think I think that uh, I think San Jose is I I think San Jose is the favorite. It really it really depends on how this stupid ass playoff format shakes out. Honestly, so I, I can't even say San Jose is the favorite because it's going to depend on matchups. But I like I like where the Sharks are positioned. Again, I I really think Calgary's in a good spot too if they get in. I, I think Chicago is still the favorite in that division. I, I like it, that's the part I struggle with. Like Minnesota has looked great all year, but Chicago is playing very well. They are they are clearly an established team with playoff experience. And one other thing that I don't know how much you value this, and that's really why I asked. Chicago kind of has Minnesota's number in the playoffs. Like I I don't know, I don't know how how if you can quantify what that effect has on has on a team or a player, but. Like that, that is something, right? Like yeah. I don't know, I don't know how meaningful it is, but that's a thing. I think it plays a little bit of a role. We're all humans. We're all affected by our past and all that kind of stuff. But like you said, how do you how do you quantify that? How do you prejudge it or predict it? It's difficult. I I don't really know. It's not something you can really put your finger on and go, this is the issue or this is what's going to happen. It's just, they've had their number. They might not this year. They might have their number again. I don't know. That's fair. All right. What was your, what was your very important food question? I know it's going to be a good one. Well, since we're on the whole, you know, pairings and combos and that sort of, uh, (laughs) that sort of angle here with, with the podcast, I thought I'd ask you, so what's your, I'm going to go the flip side though. What's, what's the worst pairing out there? So like, let me give you an example, burger and fries, um, meat and potatoes, bacon and eggs, you know, two, two foods that go together. What, which one do you, do you just shake your head at and go, why are people eating that? Well, so this is a really good question for me because I am adamantly, vehemently opposed to mixing, like my foods need to be separated at all times on my plate, and I need to eat them. I eat them one by one. I don't like it, if you have a Thanksgiving dinner and you have turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce. Let's say I will eat all the turkey, then all the mashed potatoes, then all the cranberry sauce in order. So I don't like mixing anything until it's in my stomach. Um, worst combination, though, man. Can I go? Like, will you, would you count like? Would you count like? sandwiches because sure 
is terrible as as well as the people who put mushrooms on steak like those are the two most objectable uh, objectionable things that i think a person can do wait you said mushrooms on steak and you i think you cut out for the first one mushrooms on steak and people who put swiss cheese in combination with any lunch meat on their sandwich like those are the two worst things bar by far well, one, I don't, I don't even like mushrooms, so I agree with that. And the Swiss cheese one is interesting because it's a little too strong, I feel, sometimes. When I'm eating a sandwich, I'm like, this. it could have been like a lighter cheese and I wouldn't notice so much, but it kind of takes over, I feel. I, I would easily argue that Swiss cheese and mushrooms are the two most disgusting common foods that people <laughs> eat. Like, it's, it's one, too. I would also, by the way, a third one that I, I think is more contentious but i i stand by this i have never in my life and never will put cereal with milk i eat all what? cereal if i'm having a bowl of cereal i take the box i pour it into a bowl i grab a spoon and i eat it there That's... is no step of opening milk and putting it in the bowl that does not happen i mean i'm not gonna say i've never heard that before but i've never heard of anyone like being like really into it i <laughs> i don't know is, is it like a dairy thing you don't like dairy why do why do you do i that? i just i I like milk by itself, but I don't know why you would want your cereal, a dry grain, to be like very wet, soggy. The texture and and the taste is just terrible. I, I don't I don't understand how people do it. I I find it more entertaining that like picturing you just pouring it in, and then the the milk <laughs> the milk process just doesn't happen. It's just like straight to the couch, and you're sitting there crunching away. That's pretty funny. Um, ah, this is this is a really good question. I feel like I might be missing a couple on the spot. Um, <laughs> best though, best combination. So there is. I I I may have overstepped my bounds a, a bit when I said I don't let any foods touch one another. That is absolutely true. But I can think of one exception. Okay. So when I go out, if I get like teriyaki chicken and they put it over a bed of rice, like I will not freak out and separate it. Like I will eat those two together. Yeah, that's I think great. those go well, very very well together. Those, that's the only food I can think of. That I will eat next. Are you also like anti sauce and anti condiments? Are you one of those people? I I prefer very little sauce. Like if I'm having like spaghetti and meatballs, which is a good combination, I, I put very little. I put some sauce, but it's very little. Usually I just put hot sauce on it. Here's a good one. So you're at breakfast, you get like, you know, the typical eggs and then whatever meat, ham, bacon, sausage. Which one do you pick? So if I is it like a build your own omelet? No, no, like say you're ordering like whatever, the big breakfast or the three eggs and whatever. Like it's usually you get bacon oh, okay, or you get it, sausage it, or um, you get ham. I, yeah, I usually will go sausage. Like I'll do, I'll do eggs and sausage because I think you get a little more bang for your buck with sausage over bacon, although I do like both. Those are – I could go either or, but I will usually go sausage. Well, ha- ham's definitely the loser there. I usually go, I usually go bacon. Yeah, Just, ham is – yeah, ham is, ham is an absolute no. <laughs> All right, Travis, always a pleasure, and I guess people can find you on Twitter, correct? Yeah, well, they, should. they, they shouldn't They actively search for me, but if they do <laughs> stumble into my name on mere accident, it is, yes, they can, Travis, yes, they can find me there. And obviously on TSN, you're on the radio a lot there, and then on tsn.ca, pumping out a couple articles a week. Yes, sir, every Tuesday and Thursday. Awesome. All right, thanks again, Travis. Take care, John. 